Welcome to Review of Systems, your podcast for discussion of primary care innovation, payment reform, healthcare policy, and more. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Today we are joined by Lauren Taylor. Lauren is a health services researcher based at Harvard Business School, where she is earning her doctorate in health policy and management. Prior to joining HBS, Lauren co-authored The American Healthcare Paradox, which has become required reading at a variety of medical and public health schools across the country. Lauren's work focuses on organizational theory and strategy in healthcare, with a particular emphasis on the integration of health and social services. She holds a BA in the History of Medicine and a Master in Public Health from Yale University. She has also worked as a healthcare chaplain and studied ethics as a presidential scholar at Harvard's Divinity School. We talk about the initial research papers that lay the groundwork for her book, important findings of qualitative research she did with caregivers and social services workers in the United States, and her overseas research looking at other health systems. We talk about how she has followed the evidence in making policy recommendations, and how at times cultural and political forces affect the discourse on research in her field. We talk about health systems moving toward addressing some social determinants of health through ACOs and other value-based payment systems, and how hard it is to get all of this right. If you like the show, please subscribe on our website, www.rospod.org, or on iTunes or Stitcher, and leave us a rating and a review, and share us on social media. Get in touch via Twitter at rospodcast, or drop us a line at contact at rospod.org. Thanks for listening. Lauren, welcome to the show. Morning, Audrey. In your book, The Healthcare Paradox that you and Betsy Bradley lay out, and also in the New York Times article that you wrote, was that in the United States, we spend more on healthcare than anywhere else in the world, and yet our health outcomes in many key measures, like life expectancy or infant mortality, are in the bottom half of industrializations. And you initially found this in a study comparing 30 industrialized countries that was published in BMJ Quality and Safety. And then there was a follow-up paper that you guys published in Health Affairs, you know, showing these findings. Tell us more about the original studies looking at this question, which remains extremely influential and is widely cited in other research in this area. Sure. So the original paper was now quite a, quite a few years ago. I think the actual publication date on it is 2010. But you're exactly right. The question, and I should say um, in full disclosure that I was not an author on the paper. I was a research assistant at the time. So if you go, it's um, Elizabeth Bradley, Ben Elkins, and Brian Noble. Those are the three authors. And um, so what I use we because, you know, I've picked up this line of research and run with it for a number of years, but that we is um, a little bit generous of me when we're talking about that original BMJ quality and safety paper. But the question that we were all interested in is exactly the one that you posited, which is how could it be? It's the same question many people have asked. How could it be that we spend so much, 18% of GDP, and get health outcomes that, especially if you come from a public health setting, which we were all at Yale School of Public Health at the time, really are quite frustrating. Because if you're thinking about the big population health markers, infant mortality, life expectancy, maternal mortality, as you said, you know, out of 34 OECD countries, we're not only not at the top, in many cases, we're not in the middle either. We look pretty close to the bottom. And so the novelty of the paper was saying, you know, is there something else that we could put in as a variable to a regression model that would get us more predictive power on a whole set of these health outcomes? So instead of just putting in healthcare spending as a percent of GDP at the country level, 
we also put in, um, or they really also put in percent of GDP spent on social services and ultimately arrived at this new variable, the ratio of social to healthcare spending, which was the most predictive of these health outcomes of any of the spending variables. And so the bottom line is, just as you were saying, the U.S. has a very unique and different way of appropriating resources between health spending and social service spending. In the average hypothetical OECD country, every $1 spent on health care is matched by about an additional $2 in social services. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the U.S., every $1 spent on health services is matched by only about $0.90 cents in social <laughs> services. Yeah. And so when you stack up all the ratios of the OECD countries, the U.S. actually has the smallest ratio of all. And so that made a bit more sense to us in the sense that uh, why would that be an important predictor? Well, if we're at the bottom of the ratio rankings and we're at the bottom or near the bottom of many of these health rankings, you throw it in a model, it works out. And it also coheres with the sense of the evidence that's coming forward, which is, you know, what really produces health? It's not the quality or the speed um, or access even to medical care, nor is it really your genetics. It's really the social, behavioral, environmental factors. Mm-hmm. So the spending on social services was one way for us to get, you know, a very imperfect kind of proxy measure of the attention that each of these OECD countries was putting towards the social determinants of health. In the preface of your book, you talk a little bit about how you were a little worried when your article in the New York Times came out, initially kind of reporting some of these findings. The headline said, to fix healthcare, help the poor. And it, it was concerning to you guys because you didn't make your argument at all based on notions of social justice. It's purely based on the evidence that you were looking at. But as a clinician, I work in community health center. I see everything through this kind of lens of social justice, I guess. So it was really interesting to me. Can you elaborate a little bit on that tension? Sure. You know, we've gotten, or at least I certainly have heard a whole set of kind of questions and pushback on this. So I'll tell you what we were thinking at the time. And then, you know, there's certainly room. The book came out in 2013. So there's certainly room over the past four years for, I think, some Bayesian updating, if you will, of mm-hmm. what we were going for. What we were going for at the time is just as you said, the book we wrote, trying hard to make the case for moving some attention, if not money, from health service delivery to social service delivery on the basis of the available evidence mm-hmm. and on the basis of, and if this is in everyone's self-interest, uh, we really felt that there was an argument that we could spend less overall and, or spend the same amount overall and reallocate the spending between these two buckets and get better health outcomes, so mm-hmm. get better kind of value for our money. And that was the point we were trying hard to make. Um, we were frustrated when we woke up. You know, you don't get to pick the titles mm-hmm. of your op-eds no. and saw to fix healthcare, help the poor, because we had always been feeling like actually social determinants of health is an issue for people up and down the socioeconomic gradient. And so in the book, we take pains to pull case studies that are not only characterizing people uh, who would fit the stereotype of a super high utilizer, right? Mm-hmm. Homeless, several comorbidities, churning in and out of the ED, et cetera, but also choose cases to, that were from middle class people who maybe had just lost a job or were otherwise down on their luck, or 
even some older Americans who maybe had no financial problems but were really suffering at the grips of like profound loneliness. Hmm. And so we tried hard to make the case that, you know, when we talk about social determinants of health, sometimes that gets uh, interpreted as just, oh, we're talking about poor people. But yeah. of course, if we really think about the broad swath of what are social determinants of health, sure, it's income, sure, it's nutrition, sure, it's housing. It's also things like transportation, mm -hmm. air quality, water quality. I mean, you could be living in Flint, Michigan right now with a decent amount of money. If you're drinking that water, you've got a really tough social determinants of health profile that could be costing a lot of health care dollars. And that's not necessarily like the poor. Mm -hmm. And so we were just trying to work ourselves out of this uh, kind of stereotype about what it meant to work on social determinants of health and what kinds of populations that would um, necessarily refer to and make social determinants of health kind of an everyman problem, right? Try and make right. it clear that we all have social determinants of health that influence our livelihoods and influence our healthcare consumption and influence our health. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how successful we are because again, a lot of people have followed up and said, do you really not think this is about poor people? <laughs> Um, and I always say the same thing, you know, I think, in fact, it is not about poor people. Right. But I think we get biased about this in no small part, because a lot of the evidence about social determinants of health and how to intervene on the social determinants of health is on this kind of super utilizer population, the kind of Medicaid population, you know, the places we've chosen to intervene and study what the impact of altering social determinants of health are, are usually very poor and or very uh, medically and socially vulnerable populations. Sure. And so if you look at the literature and you try and review it, you say, oh yeah, social determinants of health mm -hmm. must only be an occurrence in poor people. Yeah, confirming what we, we already know maybe. Yeah, so we were trying to push beyond that, but I'm not sure we were uh, phenomenally successful in that effort. Yeah. I guess this is a little bit related. Um, you know, you argue that investing more heavily in social services may lead to better health outcomes uh, based on the evidence. But, you know, because of political dynamics in the U.S., which are different than in Europe, where the social safety net that you compare the United States to is, is a lot more generous, um, you know, there's this desire by a lot of Americans for less government and this idea that we should be more independent from the government, this idea of a nanny state which came up in New York City when they were trying to put limits on the size of um, sugary beverages, things like that. So a political tinge can kind of come in when you're talking and thinking about this kind of policy. You know, as a researcher who's influential in policy circles, how do you talk or write about this with policymakers who generally may want less government just from an ideological point of view? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it certainly isn't easy. Yeah. <laughs> and you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, the value profiles are different. Um, one of the most interesting parts of the research for the book was we actually traveled to Norway, Sweden, and Denmark to spend a few days in each talking to both healthcare providers and social service providers and citizens just about how they felt uh, about the level of redistribution, the level of taxation, the size of the government, and it's just night and day different. And mm -hmm. so often when I talk, someone will stand up and having not read the book, say, let me tell you about how different it is in Scandinavia. And I'm <laughs> like, 
tips, and I am the first to tell you it is very different. We didn't go thinking that we could just lift something from Sweden and import it back home. We went because we thought it was a really interesting and fruitful contrast to be able to draw out what is different about these two kind of extremes, right? One, the U.S., which is like so married to this mythology of individualism and small government and the market as kind of a sorting mechanism and rationing mechanism, although we never use that term, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and kind of these socialist democracies in Scandinavia where people just have much less concern about anyone mooching. They feel like they have a lot of faith in their fellow man, Hmm. generally speaking, to say, why would anyone abuse the system? They wouldn't abuse the system. If they can work, they'll work. And if they can't work, they must really need our help and we should give it to them. Those are those dynamics. Uh, are changing a bit, I think, in light of a lot of the recent immigration waves. And so the other point people will make often in in talks and conversations is, um, but, you know, the U.S. is so much more heterogeneous than those countries. And that is absolutely right. And I think that is partly responsible for a lot of the ways in which we have tried to constrain government and redistribution mechanisms, because it's deeply unnerving to try and uh, have faith in a very large government governing a huge space that is redistributing resources from someone like me and my family to someone who maybe lives far away, is a different racial makeup, worships a different God, speaks a different language. Like that is just a lot of psychological barriers to overcome. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's part of the problem. As far as how we tried to work around this, given all of these political challenges that Mm -hmm. I've just laid out, What we really tried to say was, look, we think, you know, if we are genuinely concerned about the cost of healthcare in the sense of 18% of GDP, you know, we weren't addressing the price issue dead on. And so that is like a topic that Elizabeth Rosenthal is now taking up in her her great book, Mm -hmm. American Sickness, and others have addressed. We were trying to carve out um, really like how we got into so much GDP, which is partly a price issue, partly a Q issue. And um, we really said, if that's really a concern, we think we could at least limit that growth or, um, yeah, if not bring that number actually down, Mm -hmm. if we started to address root causes, right? And so that was kind of the Uh hat we were hanging our argument on. Now, I have to say, in the four years since I've written that book, I also have deeper doubts about whether or not that's a legitimate wish. on the part of um, a lot of Americans and American policymakers, we all talk about like, whoa, 18% of GDP, isn't it dreadful? But I think there's so many vested interests in keeping that 18% fairly high. <laughs> and no one really holds those purse strings per se, that it's not as easy to motivate an argument uh, using that kind of number and that as the problem to be solved or avoided as we thought. Right. Uh, so we yeah talked about that, and then we talked about kind of individual self-interest and organizational self-interest. So it makes a lot of sense for hospitals and health systems, community centers, if they've got large uh, groups who are either under like global capitation, capitated payments, and they're using a lot of services, or they're uninsured and they're using a lot of services. You know, there's also at the organizational level certain ways into uh, kind of high-risk populations, many of whom are poor, but some of whom may not be. Mm-hmm. That are um, consuming resources at a rate that is 
kind of a loss or it amounts to a loss for the organization. And so we also honed in there. I think that argument now in hindsight uh, was much stronger than the just aggregate like, whoa, 18%, what can we do about this? So much more abstract. Yeah. so you did a, a bunch of qualitative research for the book, interviews with frontline providers and primary care and social services, and kind of brought out four themes, which I identify with all of, and I'm sure our listeners do as well. But we'll just focus on one here for a moment, which pertains to caregivers, which was frontline personnel with limited resources are stressed to respond to patient concerns. And you pulled a quote in one of the interviews with a physician who said, I'm sitting here writing a prescription for this person who has limited ability to afford the medication or have insight on the situation, who can't go outside because the neighborhood is unsafe, and I'm totally unable to do my job. I need more support to do my job and help these patients. Can you talk a little bit more about these interviews that you did and what you gleaned from them, especially especially with the providers? Yeah, they were fascinating, um, and I stayed in touch with a number of those folks, which is nice, so I remember who said that, actually. Um, so that was the big takeaway. It was that, look, I'm a healthcare provider and I am just getting dumped on in terms of both like patient volume and perhaps more importantly, scope of patient need. So I see way too many patients and I don't have enough time with them. And then when I actually get to talk to them and I can ask them some questions that would be part of a kind of standard history or a social history, I just learned that they have needs and challenges that go way beyond kind of what my professional expertise is. I mean, the other great quote in the book comes from someone who was a primary care physician and was actually involved in quite a collaborative team-based model of care. This was um, out in Portland, Oregon, and they had set set it up so that she was working in a community center and could make pretty easy referrals to nutritionists, psychologists, social workers, housing advocates, legal aid folks. And so we went to see that as a model that we thought was potentially worth replicating. And the the insight she provided was basically, I'll I'll give it in um, imprecise terms, but she said, look, working here is amazing. And it's amazing mostly because every day I get to get up and I get to be a physician. And for a long time, I had been faking it as a social worker, as a nutritionist, as a therapist. Um, And now all of those people are here and I know who they are. And I can get my patients to people who have really specific expertise in those domains. Hmm. But what it allows me to do is just get up and be an internist, which is what I love to do and what I'm confident doing and what I know I can do correctly for the patient. And so I think that's always been highly motivating. You know, if you hold these two quotes together, you think the world we have now is one in which many physicians and just providers generally, I think it happens to nurses and other kinds of providers as well, are asked to be all things to all people. And because there's no way, especially if you're working at a community health center like you, but also if you're working at an ED or, you know, there's other places, um, there's kind of no way to say no at the point of entry to someone who's coming through the door, right? We know that the system can say no if you're uninsured and you need some very expensive care, but just walking through the door for an appointment or for an emergency visit, there's no way to say no. 
And so I think the health system bears the brunt of just like a deeply flawed and underfunded social service system. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just think that creates an enormous amount. I not only think, I know because we heard it in the interviews, an enormous amount of moral distress on the part of our frontline providers. And I think a system that was more team-based, even though I think providers have some skepticism about team-based care, like, oh, there's so much coordination and collaboration and there are costs associated with all those referrals and keeping people up to speed. That's all right. But I think the goal should be to get back to doing what you love to do. And that's a big part of what I'm trying to do now in figuring out what these models look like. And when I talk to providers, I say, you know, shouldn't that be the goal? And usually that's a way that people's eyes kind of get a little glimmer back and they're like, yeah, that sounds great. Two additional themes that came out in these interviews that I have really wrestled with is this idea that there's a widespread acknowledgement that we need more holistic approach for healthcare, but establishing and maintaining relationships between healthcare and social services are so challenging. And, um, you know, one concrete manifestation of this recognition, I think, is the growth of ACOs in the last couple of years, which give healthcare organizations some financial incentives to address the social barriers that may lead to poor health outcomes. Yeah. And you know, they say in theory will lead to market-driven solutions to some of these barriers and difficulties. And so I've worked in a couple of ACOs from the clinician side and a little bit on the administrative side. And I have to say, while I embrace the idea of them on paper, in reality, I find them really frustrating. I feel like we're just kind of dipping our toes in the water, but actually to make more lasting and meaningful difference, we really need to jump in. And, um, you know, the data coming out of them so far has been mixed. So I think the jury is still out. Um, and what do you think? Do you think you know, is this moving in the right direction? Is it still too small? I think it's a great question, and I'm not sure that anyone knows the answer definitively. I am on the side of cautious optimism. <laughs> um, but, you know, you're once again exactly right that people's experience in them has not been glowing so far. And the data has, in terms of cost savings, I should mm-hmm. say, has not been like blow the doors off phenomenal, right? We're talking yeah. about savings like one, two percent year over year. Um, What I would say is from an organizational perspective, I think maybe we shouldn't be shocked that it's both uncomfortable and not phenomenally successful this early in the game. I mean, we all underestimate just what a huge change, first of all, going from any kind of fee-for-service to a value-based financing model is, right? That just turns the whole business model of what clinics, hospitals, health systems are doing on its head. And then you think about integrating in some, you know, maybe intensive, maybe perfunctory way, other entities, be it home care or long-term services or behavioral health. These are common pieces that people need to build into into ACOs. Um, And I just think, man, that is like huge, huge, huge organizational change. And so, you know, if you told me outside of healthcare and health policy, you just described to me the level of organizational change and you said, at year two, how happy do you think people inside that organization are? I think I would probably say, it's probably gonna be a tough time. Like, not that happy. That's a lot of bumps in the road, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of changing in jobs and workflows. Uh, That just goes with that kind of change. And then if you ask me again, like apart from hold hold aside the context of ACOs or U.S. healthcare or anything, and you said, 
how well do you think the organization's performing? Mm-hmm. And this would get to the cost issue. I would hope that like my management training would kick in and say, there's probably a learning curve here. And in some sense, they're entering a new business, right? The fee-for-service business is one business and the value-based financing business is a different business that are kind of like different products even. Um, And there's probably some learning to be done there. And they're certainly not at the top of that learning curve at year one or two or three. And so in that sense, I always just try and stay open to the idea that you know, I don't think they're cataclysmic failures, right? Whether or not they're going to be grand slam successes or they're going to be kind of wasted time and effort, um, I, I think the jury's still out. But mm-hmm. I think there's good reason to at least maintain some sense of optimism if you just look at this from an organizational and managerial perspective. Right. I mean, we're really early in the game. Right. And I do still think the, like, core fundamental logic of the ACO for the most part makes sense to me. Um, And the ones that I'm very interested to watch now are these Medicaid ACOs Mm -hmm. that are coming into being here in Massachusetts, because I think that's an area where you're seeing a real emphasis on the social determinants of health and it's raising all sorts of thorny organizational questions and organizational ethics questions. But I think, um, you know, that's a patient population where, you could really save a bunch of money if you did it right. Okay, I'm going to oversimplify here, but I I have to ask, why is this so hard? There is pretty widespread consensus on these findings and agreement and broad strokes about what we need to do to improve outcomes. And I know a lot of very smart people spend a lot of time thinking about this. And why why are we still so far from figuring it out? Yeah, (laughs) I ask myself that often. (laughs) Sometimes I laugh and I just can hear myself in in talks and conversations telling really smart, often like Harvard-trained people what I do. And I say, well, I study the way in which food and water and employment and housing and income really do have a substantial role in people's health. (laughs) And I feel like I can't believe I just said those words out loud (laughs) in my ear. This is what I'm studying. Um, So I totally am empathetic to the idea that like, man, how is this so hard? I think there's a few things that uh, are worth mentioning, some of which we've touched on before. I think one is, you know, we all kind of want to reduce healthcare costs, but then also the people who, um, really stand to lose if we were to reduce healthcare costs are often the ones in positions of enormous power, right? Mm-hmm. So does like the American Hospital Association really want to bend healthcare costs? I'm not so sure. Hmm. I'm not totally convinced yet. And do they fund a lot of the policymakers' campaigns? In some ways, yes, they do. Um, does pharma really want to bend healthcare, bend the healthcare cost curve? I'm not so sure. Not really. (laughs) You know, and so when you think about who has lobbying power and who has a voice and a seat at the proverbial table when it comes to policymaking, my sense is it's a lot of people, or I've learned that it can be a lot of people who don't actually have the same stake in solving this cost issue um, as maybe you and I do. Right. Um, So that's tough. Yeah. And... 
So that's one. I think the second issue might be um, something to do with the research and the research base that we have available to us in social determinants of health. And I would say, if you're sitting atop an organization that has traditionally thought of itself as doing medical care, trying to get someone who runs a clinic or a doctor's office or a hospital to move a marginal dollar from further medical care investment to social service investment, I have found to be a very, very tough sell. Hmm. And that's in part because I think we're in this age of like evidence-based everything and people are married to this idea of I'm going to make the decision based on whatever course of action has the best evidence base. And so, look, we've had the NIH funding research on medical interventions for decades. So if you want to know what the ROI is on a new MRI machine, that's a number you can get. Uh, the evidence base for social determinants of health has been in existence for decades. Uh, it's largely come out of schools of public health. And in many cases, it's been observational studies, which mm. do not satisfy people's uh, research ticks in quite the same way. Right. It's also done on, as I was saying before, like very particular populations of people. Uh, in many cases, it's funded by philanthropies, so it's smaller scale research in terms of the actual number of people enrolled in it. In many cases, randomized control trials in these settings are thought to be just downright unethical, right? Mm -hmm. We usually don't feel good at randomizing people to housing or not to housing, <laughs> although some people have done it. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I've just gotten to this point, even though I'm a real advocate and cheerleader for more research on social determinants of health. I don't have any faith that in the near term, someone who is totally committed to making evidence-based decisions is going to be able to look at these two literatures and say, the social determinants of health literature is stronger than um, in the sense of the methods and the sample size and everything like that. And so I think that's a real challenge. Yeah. And then the third one, I would just say, we talked about this before, but I think our values are not very well aligned for this kind of move. Um, or at least we don't think of our values as very well aligned. You know, we think of social services or, or just social determinants of health in general as a topic area that calls to mind a certain degree of kind of collectivism or collective destiny, redistribution through government. And that kind of runs headlong into our sense of hyper-individualism. Right, and right. so it's not easy. I always say, you know, we think about social services as redistributive and we just totally turn a blind eye to the idea that health insurance is redistributive mm -hmm. too, right? Like yeah. you and I buy into a risk pool together. If you get sick this year and I don't, I'm paying for yours. Mm -hmm. And in the following year, vice versa. And yet most people don't think about health insurance that way. They, We've created an industry that caters to this idea of like, your health insurance is yours. It's a personal widget that you buy off the shelf, like flow in the car commercials buys her auto insurance off mm -hmm. the shelf. And so I think we lie to ourselves a little bit there, but the lie goes deep. And so it doesn't help um, in motivating a move from further medical investment to social service investment at all. Right. 
You published an article in 2015 with your frequent collaborator and co-author of your book, Betsy Bradley and Carlos Cuellar, arguing that management was a key ingredient in health system strengthening and was underrecognized and undervalued. You define management as the process of achieving predetermined objectives through human, financial, and technical resources. And in the article, you lay out eight core management competencies, such as uh, strategic thinking and problem solving and operations management. I would say, I would say that good management is tragically underrecognized and undervalued in healthcare in the United States. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And um, in the last ten years or so, there has been a growing movement of MD MBAs in the United States um, taking leadership positions in healthcare organizations, which I think is a good shift. And I'd like to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked. I think management is always almost always uh, undervalued, overlooked, underappreciated, right? Yes. Especially, I think, middle management. Yes. Sometimes <laughs> when we think about management, we think about the C-suite as like, oh, they're trained as managers. And, you know, to some extent, that C-suite has a core function of doing strategy making and providing leadership to the organization overall, setting a vision, defining priorities, but then it's really those middle managers, I think, who are translating that strategy or the five or 10 year plan um, to the front line that can make or break these initiatives, yeah. ACO initiatives, PCMH initiatives, any, especially in an industry that is so um, defined by like nearly constant change mm -hmm. and change management. The people who can do the sense making or kind of give meaning to the everyday, which is inevitably going to have some real wins. You know, you save someone's life, you get the diagnosis right, um, and it's going to have some losses, I think happens in large part in that middle, middle management uh, set of roles. And so those are often nurse managers, those are department heads. Uh, those are kind of shift managers, all those type of folks. And so, yeah, this was a paper that we wrote really for a global health setting because management is just tremendously unsexy when you're thinking about global health. Mm -hmm. um, but as you said, it's unsexy here in many cases too. And so uh, I would love to see more attention both from a research perspective and from um, kind of a practice leadership perspective, although I know HBS and, and many of the hospitals around here do a great job on making sure that that middle layer of management um, feels comfortable doing the translation from the high level strategy, what and who are we trying to be as an organization to the day-to-day -day realities on frontline workers, because I think that's how organizations actually hold together and can be successful in creating pretty, pretty large scale change. Yeah. So it's my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> um, I would, maybe I would add one more thing, which is, I think managers also have, we often think about hospitals and care providers as having really ethically fraught jobs, right? There's mm -hmm. whole fields of clinical ethics, bioethics. Um, there's a Hippocratic oath. There's all sorts of professional guides for providers to think about how they do what they do in a way that is um, ethical or just or right. 
And I think one of the places we've really underthought is all of the ethics associated with management. And I think it's coming up a ton now in the kind of organizational change that is happening in healthcare. So if you think about a healthcare organization like many that maybe has one foot in a fee-for-service system and one foot in a, some kind of value-based financing system or an ACO system, you know, if you were a pure profit maximizer, if you were just trying to please the CFO, you might actually treat those two sets of patients differently. You know, two people who walk in with the same demographic factors and the same symptoms, the one in fee-for-service you might, you know, do additional workups on or you might, uh, I don't know, you may treat him differently than the person who comes in with the same symptoms and same demographics in an ACO Mm -hmm. model or in an alternative quality care contract model. Yeah. So I think that's one of these things that managers are starting to run into, or at least I'm starting to wake up to the challenges they're facing, yeah. um, is what do you do about that? Yep. And as an organization, especially that often runs on thin margins, you know, is it ethical? Is it just to treat those patients differently in the name of keeping the doors open on the community health center so that you can live to serve another set of patients tomorrow or next week or next year? Or is that just not um, tolerable? And if it's not tolerable, then like, what is the justification and how much are you willing to risk the organization in order to stick to your guns on that? And so I would say both, you know, yes, management enormously important um, for the organization, but also probably has a whole set of ethical challenges that we have not really given credence to and not put on the floor for robust discussion the same way we've thought about the ethical challenges that providers face. Lauren, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. This was such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Audrey. That was really fun. You've been listening to Review of Systems. What do you think about integrating healthcare and social services? Is it a good strategy to improve health outcomes and reduce wasteful spending? Please get in touch with your thoughts. You can email us at contact at or tweet at us at ROSpodcast. Please check our website, www.ROSpod.org, for additional information about our guest, Lauren Taylor, and some articles pertinent to our discussion today, as well as archives of our previous shows. Thanks for listening.